You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, started just over a year ago, we've been following closely, um, looking at how civilians and and war crimes have been committed and and concerned by that. Um, And Tim, you came across... Uh, we've been following you religiously. Um, I think one of your your Twitter accounts is is one of the best ones to follow about about the war in Ukraine's impact on people and and your Substack account, which is a must to um, for anyone trying to understand what's happening. I, I think I think um, it's it's a, you're providing a phenomenal <laughs> a phenomenal resource for us to understand the war. So thank you just in advance. Thank you for joining us today, Tim. Well, thank you for that um, suspiciously under. Uh, underrepresented uh, <laughs> introduction. It's too kind. <laughs> so, Thank Tim, um, I, I like to go into the discussions. We you know, we have you for about half an hour, so I don't want. I, um, and we know that people will, after long, long tour spaces, people don't listen in as long. So, we want to get right into it. Um, sure, sure. So, so Tim, you used to be a foreign correspondent for NPR, and then on February twenty third, twenty twenty two, you arrived in Kiev to cover a possible war, but the war started the same night you arrived there. Could you talk to us about this this experience? What was it like as a as a foreign correspondent? Well, you know, so I I had been before I um, I joined NPR. Or actually, while I was still at NPR, I was also an army combat medic. I, I juggled both jobs at the same time. And so when when there was a possible war um, starting here in Ukraine, it made a lot of sense to send um, someone with that with that skill set to to Kiev. Now, just to put you in the context of February 23rd or 24th of 2022, you know, at that point, the U.S. had been banging the drums for weeks saying there's going to be an invasion, there's going to be an invasion. And they actually predicted it, you know, 10 days before, or, you know, a week before. And so by the time I landed, there was a lot of skepticism that the American intelligence community had really gotten their, their stuff together. Um, and there was a lot of skepticism. I remember taking the the ride, for, uh, the taxi ride from the airport, um, uh, the night the war was to begin. And I, I was just talking to the cab driver and we were just chatting. And he said, look, there's nothing happening here. No one's panicking. There's no problems. And he said, I don't think this is going to happen. Um, at three o'clock in the morning, I get a call and it's an editor of mine. And he says, I think you better go down to the basement. Um, <laughs> there's something happening outside. And I'm like, what is happening? Uh, it's three o'clock. I'm jet lagged. I, 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 I haven't even unpacked. Um, and there are explosions going on outside. And I think, what do I do? And so naturally, the first thing I did in my shock was go to the bathroom and start brushing my teeth. So I, just, I was just in shock. I didn't know what to do. So I did the first thing that I normally just kind of muscle memory. I started brushing my teeth and thinking, what have I gotten myself into? And we were on the 27th floor of this gigantic high-rise hotel in Kiev. And, you know, there are bombs going off. You don't want to take the elevator and get stuck. So we ran 27 floors down to get to the basement. Of course, later in the day when we had to get our stuff, we had to run back 27 more lights back up and then 27 back down. It It was a hugely dramatic moment. I'll never forget that night. So, um, Tim, our understanding is that while you were with NPR, you were eventually laid off, but then you went back to Ukraine to report about the war. Um, wh- why did you do this? 
Well, so uh, NPR had uh, had a number of layoffs, uh, about a hundred people, and I'm I'm one of the people that is included in that number. Um, and you know, uh, while I was not, uh, this may be a distinction without a difference, but I was not tagged for a layoff, but I did um, I did a, I agree to take the spot of someone else who was laid off. Um, that that may or may not be uh, an important distinction. Um, but uh, basically, there's the push and the pull, right? The push was, I needed some work. And the poll was, after you've been here for a little while, and you understand the you know, compelling human stories that happen here, um, it's, hard to, it's hard not to be drawn to this place. It's hard not to be pulled into these, into these stories and these narratives and these investigations. They're, they're just so, uh, they move you, and, and they, they hurt you, and they, they inspire you, and uh, I don't know. I've never quite covered a, a story like this, and, and I guess I felt really drawn to it. Well, Tim, after more than just over a year of war, uh, the public's attention is slowly waning, especially in the U- U.S. Your reporting is quite unique because instead of focusing on military advances, you write about individuals, uh, people caught up what their daily life is in Ukraine that's at war. Do you think that this kind of reporting will maintain the general public's interest in knowing what's happening in Ukraine? Well, I appreciate you pointing that out because it's very much the purpose of the counteroffensive, right? That, that's the name of my publication. The purpose of the counteroffensive is to tell compelling human stories and keep interest in this war, that, that I'd want to tell interesting stories that would intrigue our readers and our listeners, whether it was set in Ukraine or not, stories that, um, that are about fundamental human emotions, whether it's betrayal or intrigue or anger or frustration or sadness, these stories I think are compelling whether they're about war or not. I'll give you an example. So, you know, um, last week there were these, uh, there were dozens of of airstrikes in Kyiv and you could hear the blasts all through the night at around three o'clock in the morning. But instead of writing a story about how, you know, there are three dozen, like a typical story you might find in the Washington Post or the New York Times, there, you know, there were three dozen uh, uh, drone and missile attacks in Kyiv uh, on Monday night, Tuesday morning. What we did instead was we, we wanted to find a person and, and, and tell an interesting story through the eyes of that person. So we went to the Kyiv Zoo, where one of the blasts actually sent shrapnel down into the zoo. And we interviewed a sketch artist who was working just a few, just, just a short, uh, short way down the road from from where that shrapnel came flying down after it was shot out of the sky, after the missile was shot out of the sky by anti-missile defense here in Kyiv. And we interviewed him about how he had experienced the explosions on Tuesday morning, early Tuesday morning. And we interviewed him about what it was like to be an artist during wartime and how the last few years have been to him. And you learn his struggles and what gets keeps him going. But as you read this narrative, by the end of the, the, the story, you've also learned all the salient facts about the, yeah, the missile and, and drone strikes overnight. So it's kind of like, you know, the human story is the meat, and I'm trying to stuff some vegetables in there to get people to eat their veggies. That's fascinating, Tim. Uh, for those of you who are listening in, please share this Twitter space uh, live. And if you're not, please give Tim a follow on Twitter and check out his Substack page, Counteroffensive. It's it's a it's a fascinating. Um, with his articles are all there, and they're just really worth reading. Uh, Tim, I'd like to get back to to 
You, know, you spent 10 months investigating the killing of a man on the side of the road in a small town called Nova Basan. Can you talk about the investigative process and how do you work with people on the ground to cover these stories? Well, that, that I have to say that story was uh, the hardest story I've ever worked on in my entire life. Right. So this is an investigation which we spent eight months on into a war crime. Um, and we started with virtually no information. Um, I had gotten a tip from a, a war crimes investigator that someone had been killed on the fourth day of the war in this small village. You mentioned it. It, it was called Nova Basan. But we didn't know anything other than that. We didn't know who this person was, uh, what his name was. So we went to Nova Basan and we found the wreckage of his car, which had been blown up. And we spoke to the villagers who were, who were living in the vicinity, and they told us that, that a man's body had laid out there in the winter for more than a month. And we canvassed the entire village. We found out uh, the name of this man. His name was Alexander Breus. We learned what he was doing on the day that he was killed. He was trying to go to Kiev to evacuate his sister and fiance. We spoke to everyone in the village um, that, that we could find. And we found two people who heard the killing. We found two separate videos of the aftermath of the killing. And then after a lot of effort, we found one person who saw the killing and told us that Alexander Breus had been shot in the back of the head. And then a, uh, an armored vehicle had come by and blown up his car. Um, but we weren't finished there. We still had to figure out whether, how much we can do to, uh, to determine who the folks were who killed Alexander Breos. And so in, in one of our canvases of the village, uh, we learned that there was a woman in Kiev who on that morning had filmed the column of Russian vehicles entering the village. And as she filmed, they shot at her because they saw her filming. She managed to escape to Kiev and she gave us the video. It showed this vehicle on it. It had an O on it. An O is a marking that stands for Central Military District, a particular uh, region of uh, 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 the Russian military and how it's organized. And then we, we saw in that video also a very specific vehicle called the BTR-82A. And what we realized was that there were only two units in the Central Military District that operated that specific kind of vehicle. So we were able to narrow down to two units, uh, two Russian units, the, the, the units that could have killed Alexander Breos. Ultimately, we narrowed it down even further to about 50 potential people. We found out the, the name of the commander of the unit, of the units that, that killed Alexander Breos. But that's about as far as we managed to get. After eight months, we had kind of hit a dead end, that we had done pretty much anything you could have imagined. And the point of that piece was to illustrate that that was, well, two things. It was, one was to humanize what a war crime really is and to drill down into a real person, to get to know that person, their interests. Alexander Breus loved to rap and to play basketball and to bike. Um, that was important for us. But the other thing that was important was to illustrate how exhausting this process is and how incredibly difficult it's going to be to find accountability for the 70,000, 80,000 alleged war crimes that have been committed in Ukraine since the war began. It's going to be an incredibly difficult process. No, I agree with you. I mean, we've seen, Tim, just so many war crimes, human rights violations committed in Ukraine. Um, and it, it's good to hear that you know, part of the reason that you're, you're reporting is 
to focus on single crimes uh, and, and you don't want people to be statistics. But I'm wondering, as a reporter and witness to this war, how do you make sure to still see each victim as a human being with a story and family? Um, well, I've made it the core philosophy of this, this new publication, The Counteroffensive, right? That, that I, want, I want the news to be viewed in a narrative form through the eyes of people who have been there and their experiences rather than, you know, the, the, the more, uh, the, the plainer uh, traditional way of reporting the news. I don't want to say that, uh, that here's the, you know, here, here's the latest military situation in Bakhmut. Um, I want to show you like we did on with Sunday's edition. I want to show you what it looks like in Bakhmut from the perspective of a U.S., a former U.S. military service member who fought there as recently as 10 days ago. Um, and I want you to understand his feelings, his feelings of sadness and anxiety um, for, for the Ukrainian military being pushed back out of a place where he lost many of his fellow soldiers, most of them Ukrainian and a handful of fellow Americans too. Uh, I want to show you a video from the first person perspective that shows you what it looks like in that absolutely destroyed city. Um, but I want to give you an immersive experience. And, and I think that's an, that, that is one of the more important things about the coverage of the war in Ukraine that, um, that we miss, that as time goes on, it becomes kind of sanitized. Oh, it's another missile attack. Oh, it's another day with troops moving, you know, a little bit on this front in the east or in the south. Um, I would lose interest too. And, uh, and, and I want to write things that I'd be interested to read. And, and so that's, that's why we kind of adopted that philosophy. Tim, investigative journalists such as yourself and other organizations such as Bellingcat are playing an integral role as witnesses of the war and um, telling the stories of victims. Do you think that the evidence uncovered by investigative journalists can be used in court eventually to seek justice? And, and, and how do you connect um, your readers to the realities of Ukrainians? Well, I, I think those are those are um, those are really important questions. Let me let me answer the first one about investigative journalism and in, in, in court um, uh, use in court. Um, I think accountability does involve a legal process, but it also involves truth telling. Right, that that the very act of telling what happened is part of accountability. Um, and and I think that good investigative journalists and good uh, reporters understand that by telling the story, they're playing a part in um, injustice. Now, typically, uh, you know, newspaper stories are difficult to admit in court because they're seen as hearsay and, and courts require direct evidence. That said, organizations like Bellingcat, they do what's known as open source investigations. They show their work. They show how it's rep replicable. And uh, or open source reporting is useful because anyone else can do it, including law enforcement or war crimes investigators. If you show your work, uh, anyone else can duplicate it. And then, uh, you know, uh, uh, prosecutors, for example, investigators can introduce it in, in various courts. Um, that's useful. Now, when you go into stories like the one we did with Alexander Breus, I mean, it, that's not replicable because we did a lot of human interviews. Um, in order to admit that sort of thing in court, prosecutors and investigators, I think, depending on the legal standard, would need to go back and, and re-interview a lot of folks, which they can do. Now, as far as 
connecting readers to the reality of Ukrainians. I think um, empathy is key here, right? Empathy is about placing yourself and imagining what life would be like if you were in Ukraine. Uh, oh, that apartment looks just like mine. That dog looks pretty familiar to a dog I see down the street from me. Um, I really love jazz music too, and I'm really interested to hear the story about the jazz club in Odessa that refuses to shut down with, despite the fact that it does not have power and can't, and no one can afford tickets. Um, those, those, are the, those are the connections that I want to make with this sort of journalism at the counteroffensive. Um, really connecting readers to uh, things in you know, little, um, little parts of life that they can imagine themselves being into. Tim, a few weeks ago, a reporter named Armin Solden was killed in Ukraine. He's not the first journalist uh, to die, but we'd like to ask you, how risky is it to be a reporter in Ukraine right now? And what do you need to, to keep yourself safe and, and, and keep working there? Well, I was, I was, at, um, I was at Armin's uh, memorial here in, in Kiev, and you really get a sense of what a tight-knit community um, – uh, correspondents are here in Ukraine and how, the, how that echoes uh, other communities in, in conflict areas in the past. Um, and Arman was not in uh, Bakhmut, which is the most dangerous and, 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 and the hottest point of the fighting along the front line. He was, he was a little further back at a place called Chasifyar when he was killed. Um, there, I think the, the simple answer is that it really depends, that um, the closer you go to the front line, the more dangerous it is. The further you go, uh, the safer it is. Um, it's not the same level of risk to report from Western Ukraine in a city called uh, like Lviv, for example, or in Kiev, as opposed to in the Donbass, where a lot more thing. There's a lot more risk. You're within the range of a lot more things that could kill you, um, and so it's a real it's a real mix. Um, and you have to be constantly reassessing your safety, uh, the safety of your team, and those around you. And what people are feeling on a gut level um, to, to, to be safe. I mean, what, what we need to keep working on this important issue essentially is, I hope you won't mind me saying, is subscribers, paid subscribers. Um, we've had a, a, a huge outpouring of support so far, um, and I'm hoping that that continues um, because uh, paid subscriptions buy our body armor and our helmets and our medical gear um, and the things that we need to keep reporting. Unfortunately, reporting still and journalism still really much re relies on uh, on some matter of financial support. Um, and there are a few models that work, but the subscription model is the one that, that we've decided to lean on for this venture. So all of you listening in, uh, you've heard it takes money uh, to keep this journalism going, to report on what's happening on the ground, and to keep journalists safe. So if you're not, please check out Tim's um, Tim Substack page, Counteroffensive, and sign up and, and give him some support for the important work he's doing um, and uh, and to keep him safe. So I think that, that's a let key me, message. Let me, that, let me yeah, add one ahead. more thing, too. Um, I, I know there are a lot of people out there who also may not have the means to contribute $8 a month, uh, which is which is what we uh, what we ask for. And I'm very happy for people to to subscribe as a free subscriber, too. I don't, I don't want to, you know, obviously I'm more than happy to, to, to get paid subscriptions, but I, I'm happy for people to follow along and just read our stories as well. Um, I don't mean to undercut 
If you were just about to pull out your credit card, I don't mean to cut you. But I'm, I'm happy I, to, I, I was I'm trying happy to give you some support there, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> Tim, um, among all the reporting you have done, is there one person or one story that has stood out for you? I mean, you, you talked about, um, you know, some of your, but are there other stories you've covered that, mm-hmm. that, that really just stand out as you, yeah. as you want to, to, to think about the individuals in this war? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Alexander Breos, that story we talked about a little earlier would have been one of them. But uh, since we've already discussed it, I, I, I might draw attention to another investigation that, that we did at NPR, which involved tracking down a particular Russian unit, a Russian unit called the 53rd uh, Anti-Aircraft Missile Brigade. Now, this was the unit that shot down MH17 in Donbass in 2014. You may remember that. It caused a huge, yeah. huge uh, international scandal and... 298 people were killed. Um, after much digging, we were able to find the 53rd Brigade's, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the name of their commander, their secret code name, the number of troops they had, and their uh, secret headquarters location in Izum. And then after that area was uh, retaken by Ukrainian forces, we managed to visit that area too. But it was a very important story to me, I think, because um, it, it, it showed something about Vladimir Putin's mentality, which was that even after this particular unit had been accused of terrible atrocities and the deaths of hundreds of people, he was willing to send them right back in um, to, to essentially to kill again. And, um, and, and that, was, that was something that, that was really impressed upon us as we not only investigated the story, but went to um, Amsterdam and went to The Hague where a lot of the families were waiting to hear more about the 53rd and, and, um, and, and tell a fuller version of the story, um, hopefully closer to, closer to justice. Tim, my, my last question for you is, what's it like to be a journalist reporting from the ground in Ukraine while at the same time we're seeing just massive amounts of disinformation, political spin, um, just sometimes outright lies about what's happening. Like, like, what is that like trying to use your journals to pierce through state-led disinformation and propaganda? Um, everything about a journalist is about trust. Um, you know, you build it uh, and it takes years and you can lose it in an instant. And, um, you know, uh, I, 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 I think that uh, my advice to people when it comes to disinformation is to diversify your sources of news, uh, pick sources that you've trusted and known for a long time and be skeptical of information from sources you don't immediately recognize and to challenge yourself. Sometimes many of us are just too willing to believe things because we happen to agree with what uh, a particular news story supposedly illustrates. Um, if something is a little, if it's a little too neatly with your preconceived notions, Maybe have a second thought about it. Um, I think those are those are my thoughts. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of rumor that flies around on social media in Ukraine and in Russia, and it's very often hard to to separate fact and fiction, especially if you're not on site where where the actual things are happening. Um, and many times it's impossible because it's too violent or too dangerous to get on site to where those things are happening. And um, you know, at those times, I remain skeptical, and I hope everyone remains uh, skeptical of me and, and other journalists and challenges people and, and, um, and remains, uh, uh, remains 
um, uh, thinking in a critical manner. Thank you. I think those are perfect closing comments for us to think I about. Had a, if, you don't, if you don't mind, I have a quick question, Tim. Um, sure. One of your of the latest subsag is about um, the, I don't know how to pronounce this, the Fiji uh, Vanka, which is that Ukrainian ah, yes. outfit. Uh, outfit. And I mean, my colleagues and I at Mix, we've been also looking at how Russia is trying to destroy um, Ukrainian identity and culture. And I was wondering if, yeah, I think I think that stuff that was really a good example of the kind of work that you do because you bring that cultural aspect in the aspect of, of war as well. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about about what that outfit um, means for for Ukrainians. Sure. Well, the the Vishivanka is a, a, a typically uh, white folk shirt that Ukrainians wear. It's embroidered and it's embroidered often with um, geogra- geometric shapes or or bright patterns. Um, it's a, it's a kind of tra- it's it's a hundreds year centuries old tradition the Vishivanka, um, and uh, last week was uh, on Thursday it was Vishivanka Day, and so in keeping with what I w- I've been kind of explaining to uh, to our audience here, um, I w- I didn't just want to say hey it's Vishivanka Day I wanted to take you to a person who had spent their life working on Vishivanka. So we spoke to a woman named Maria Zarenska and she had spent seven decades, seven decades, um, both making them and telling young people the history and the importance of that in their culture. Um, you make a, a wise point that, that, Russian, that the Russian invasion has not just been about territory, but it's about, been about a challenge and um, an, an effort to even extinguish um, Ukrainian culture uh, and identity as a separate and distinct thing. Um, in a lot of ways, walking around Kiev and seeing everyone, so many people, wear their Vishivankas was, a, was an act of resistance to that notion, was an act of rebellion against uh, Russian efforts over the last year. And, and so um, it was really important for me to share that with, with readers who might not be as familiar with that, um, the, phenomenon on, uh, the phenomenon of the Vishivanka and, um, and share a little of that brightness from here in Kiev. Thank you. And also for all the dog lovers out there, Tim often tries to, put, to, to have a picture of a dog of war, a Ukrainian dog at the end of each article, which I love because I'm a dog lover. So. Me too. There's an occasional cat of war uh, <laughs> for the cat lover, but they're, they're, less, uh, they're, they're less prominent on the streets. So. <laughs> so Thank you. Keep, keep an eye out for dogs. Uh, if you're not paying attention, um, you'll notice them. So Tim, uh, once again, thank you so much for joining us. Keep up your important work and, and everyone, if you're not uh, following his Substack or following him on Twitter, please do. Tim, have a have a great day. Thank you so much.